sinner like me. Lord God, I want to thank you so much that uh, in the midst of all that there is to do as God, uh, that you saw us as individuals, and you say there is a person in which I want to say because I love them. So we are so appreciative, we're so grateful of your grace and your mercy, Lord. Now, as we turn to your word, we ask you uh, that you would open up our hearts, that we may be receptive to all uh, that you have in store for us today. Again, sometimes uh, the word is different uh, for every individual, but yet your word is the same. It uh, has one particular effect It accomplished every single thing which it was set out to do. Search our hearts, Lord. That's the word for today. Search our hearts. See if there's any iniquity in us, within us, Lord. We invite you to purge it. Point to it, Lord God. Again, that we may be more like Christ day by day. Let your perfect work be done in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some people have a gifting for matching colors, matching ideas, putting together textures. For some, they are experts at putting flavors together in the kitchen. And I happen to be one of those people who match colors really, really well. Especially when you tell me what goes together. But I must admit to you that certain things that go together, certain pairings, I totally fail to see how one thing connects to the other. Like some people can manage to pull off polka dots and stripes somehow. Uh, without looking like a clown. On the other hand, we have also learned over the years that uh, there are certain things that don't go together, like oil and water. We say oil and water do not mix. Well, here's one for you. What about pancakes and ketchup? Or, here's a lovely concoction, vinegar and milk. Or, pouring water over your breakfast cereal. I've actually done that before when we ran out of milk. I ended up throwing my cereal away, but uh, I actually tried it. What about using mayonnaise as whipped cream on your ice cream sundae? Yum! These pairings, to me, they make no sense. Maybe some of you find them appealing, but for me, I don't find them appealing at all. In fact, they sound just right out disgusting. But today, we, we enter a discussion with Jesus and the disciples of John the Baptist about things that should or should not go together. The disciples of John, again, this is John the Baptist. Uh, When they approached Jesus, they were perfectly legitimate and honest about what was in their heart. They they wanted to know, 
about what Jesus had going on. Uh, so they approached him with these questions. Sometimes, as we know, at our very core, what we think, what we believe, that we uh, may pry, we may ask questions, and not really know what we want. For instance, we may want God to bless us, but God may look at us and say that what you really need is a solid faith. So on the one hand, we ask God, God, would you bless us? God, would you do this? God, would you give me that? But God says what my son, what my daughter, what you really need is a stronger faith. A faith to endure. So place yourself in the shoes of these men. These men who are probing Jesus about the way that Jesus and his followers are living this religious life. But after you have placed yourself in their shoes, I want you to dig deep down inside of yourself and ask the Lord to change you. Ask the Lord that He would help us to direct our questioning about the things we've been praying for in such a way that our faith would become fuller and our faith would become true. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. Verse 14 reads this way. Then the disciples of John came to him, they came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? In other words, why do we dig deep down spiritually when you and your disciples are just walking around here all willy-nilly? So John's disciples, they posed a question to Jesus. And the question was about fasting, was it not? But that question was not in line with what they were really looking for. How are you going to tell me you know, the question that I have? I explained to you now, however, that... Uh, for them, their question was not in line with what they were looking for. Many times the question we ask is not the same as the answer that we need. The question that we pour out our heart uh, to the Lord may not be uh, the question that we need uh, to ask Him. In other words, there are deeper things lurking beneath the surface of our skin, needing to be satisfied, but we ourselves may not even know what we want. How do you even know what you want? It's like the person who wants so much for one liter of soda pop because 
Uh, they're thirsty. But then their friend, instead of giving them one liter of soda pop, gives them one liter of water. Why? Because that friend understood what was going on. They understood that they were thirsty. Uh, they understood that what they needed was a drink of water. And whereas a soda pop would taste good. Can you say amen? I was, uh, yesterday I was sitting at a table having dinner. And before me, someone had a little bottle of soda pop there. I said, boy, that sure looks good. And then I said, I wonder how much sugar is in this whole thing. And man, it was, it was dangerous. And instantly, I, you know, I, I asked for some water after that. So even though I, I wanted that, uh, that's not what I needed. So John's disciples were asking a question and did not know what they were asking for. They didn't realize what their deepest needs were versus their deepest wants. This is one of the reasons a relationship with the Lord and a relationship and a relationship with the Lord and a relationship with the church is so vital to our spiritual health and our spiritual growth. It is within the structure of these relationships that our thinking can be transformed. Transform, uh, transformation, it occurs not only on our knees before the Lord, but also within the context of our brothers and sisters in the faith. If you don't believe me, look at the Apostle Peter. Look at the Apostle Paul and how when they began to get out of alignment with certain things that they had another brother to come alongside of them and say, you know what, that's not right. When Paul began to get out of alignment with what uh, the truth of God's word was, Barnabas came along and basically says, Paul, uh, that, that we can't act that way. And when Peter himself uh, thought that uh, you know what, uh, I need to hang around people of my own race. Uh, Paul uh, told us through Scripture that, that I stood to Peter face to face and basically said that you are wrong. See, uh, that transformation also occurs within community. So if this is true, with those apostles, isn't it more so true with us as well? That we can't grow fully in our faith without being fully around people. So those who say, well, my church is only on TV, well, I, I beg to differ. Because the church, the ecclesia, that it is a gathering of God's people together. Can you say Amen. So these were the disciples of John the Baptist. And if you recall, John the Baptist, John the Baptist, once he realized who Jesus was, that he stood in a concord with Christ. But now the disciples of John the Baptist, uh, it dealt with Jesus uh, not following the spiritual disciplines uh, that the disciples of John and the Pharisees had observed. 
The law had required that the Israelites, that they would fast on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Some Pharisees, in fact, uh, they would uh, kick it up a notch. And they would fast not only on the Day of Atonement, some would fast once a week, others would fast twice a week. Because they wanted to be spiritual. Therefore, uh, within that society, it was uncommon uh, for uh, any disciple who was worth their weight in gold, anyone who followed a teacher, if you did not fast, you were considered to be abnormal. So, if that's the context of what's going on, uh, it makes sense that the disciples of John the Baptist, they were wondering about what's going on with the disciples of Jesus. They started to question within their minds the legitimacy of not only Jesus' disciples and their actions, but also the legitimacy of Jesus by implication. So I look at you, then I wonder about your teacher. Look at you, and I wonder what your teacher has taught you. So what really drives our questions about faith? What drives your question about faith? Why do we even question others about undertaking or not undertaking certain spiritual tasks or disciplines when we ourselves may not even understand what's behind us asking the question towards them in the first place. I mean, uh, if, if those things, uh, fasting as an example, are required for spiritual death, then why are we so spiritually shallow? If we have fasted repeatedly, why are we so shallow in our life? You see, sometimes our questions reveal the level of our spiritual immaturity. Now, now rest assured, uh, if you think, I don't want you to ask questions, you're wrong. I want you to continue to probe, continue to ask questions, because in that, we're able to grow. But these people, they were concerned with the act of fasting. They were concerned whether or not Jesus and his boys really understood the infraction they were committing against, here it is, the traditions that had been set up from long, long ago. So to them, Jesus uh, would be railing against the spiritual systems that had been placed even before Jesus was born. So Jesus, you come along here, talking about you're this and you're that. And you can't even follow uh, the traditions that have been put into place. So how can you be all that, Jesus? How can you really be this person who says you know all things, but yet you can't even follow the traditions of fasting? So looking at our passage Again, Matthew 9, verse 14. And if you understand certain things about John the Baptist and his view on the Pharisees, right? There were two, really two opposing camps. Uh, John the Baptist wanted to usher in 
uh, this new era of God. As the Pharisees wanted to maintain the traditions. But here is a case, here is an instance in which they came together. In fact, at one time, John the Baptist called the Pharisees and called the leaders of the day. He called them, you brood of vipers. He called them a pit of snakes. Now they have come together. What did they say? Your enemy, if we're enemies, your enemy and my enemy, if they're the same enemy, that makes us friends. So here they came together, these brood of vipers, this idea of connecting with them and their thought processes. They had come together in order to come against Jesus. But according to Luke, Chapter 5, verse 33, Luke 5.33. We see that Jesus' disciples were accused not only of not fasting, but also of eating and drinking when the time to fast was at hand. Look at that, Luke 5.33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. So while we are fasting before the Lord, here you are eating a big bag of Lay's potato chip. Right when you know that we're struggling and travailing in our prayers and in our fasting, here you show up uh, with uh, an order of french fries. But I want you to look at something. Uh, you can't tell in your text, but look at the end of that verse. It's Luke 5, 33. Uh, the passage where it says, uh, but yours eat and drink. In uh, the original language, this is called uh, an active voice, right? And an active voice means this is something that they're doing constantly, that they keep on doing is something that's happening in the here, in the now. So in other words, uh, the passage could read, while we are fasting, your disciples just eat and eat and eat and eat. And your disciples, while we are fasting, are just drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. And you're totally disregarding the, uh, our, our traditions. In other words, Jesus, your disciples, are just Throwing their disregard for our traditions in our face. So these men, they were crying out through their prayers and fasting for God to act on their behalf. These people who were praying and fasting while Jesus and his disciples were having a good old time. So they were crying out through their prayers. Why do we fast? Why do we fast? Crying out through their prayers, crying out through their fasting that God would act on their, or on their behalf. They're mourning before God. It is our desire for the Lord to change or create a situation uh, that will be easier for us to exist or to change our circumstances. Time, that's why we pray and we fast. But isn't this what God had already done by sending Christ? See what I'm saying? Listen to me. So they're crying out that uh, situations would change. Here it is in Israel. That they were fasting 
Because now the Romans had now taken charge over their nation. Maybe a city-state at this time. But uh, the Romans had now taken charge. Every time they managed to get free, it comes another group of individuals who says, now we have control over you and your people. So many of them, the Pharisees, uh, they were crying out uh, before God that, uh, that they would be free from the bondage. God had already done this through Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Uh, there he was, exactly what they had prayed and fasted about for year after year after year. Lord, uh, give us freedom, give us freedom, give us freedom. Uh, but yet, uh, the Lord God provides the Son of God as an answer to their prayers. And they can't recognize them. Jesus was at work in their midst, but they could not identify who he was. So I don't want you to miss this. They had also accused Jesus. Listen to the, the one that they had been praying and fasting uh, that he would come and be a deliverer to their nation had showed up. But instead, they're accusing him of not following the traditions of uh, the Pharisees. Because he was not fasting. But another time, and here it is, they accuse him of, uh, of partying too much as well. Matthew, back in Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. Matthew 9, 10 and 11. And as Jesus reclined at, ta at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. In other words, Jesus was partying with sinners. How many of you would like Jesus to go and party with you? Would you have a wholesome party with Jesus if he showed up? Verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat? with tax collectors and sinners. Right? So before us, why aren't you fasting? Right? Now that came afterwards. But, uh, but here they're saying, why are you eating with those? It's okay to eat, but why are you parting with sinners? And brothers and sisters, I need to have you to know that uh, it is sinners that God called Jesus Christ to. And I need for you to know, it's okay to hang out with sinners. Can you say amen? It's okay to hang out with yourself. It's okay. That's all right. As long as you don't act like them, can you say amen? As long as you are strong enough to endure through the debauchery that oftentimes sinners bring to the table. You have to be strong within yourself and strong within your faith. And if you're not there, then you can't hang out with the sinners. Was Jesus strong enough to hang out with the sinners? 
Was he strong enough to hang out with the tax collectors? Was he strong enough uh, to hang out with those who lived an untoward life? The answer is yes. But some of you, uh, God has delivered you from something. And you may not be ready to hang out with them. You're not ready yet. You need to continue to grow in your faith. And maybe one day God will use you in that area. So people, uh, the bottom line is that people who have the wrong motives will always find a reason to accuse and to exploit you. People who have the wrong motive will always, whether you are not fasting or whether you're eating with the wrong people, Jesus, I noticed, I I, I was measuring your robe, and it should have been uh, another half of an inch longer. Therefore, do you really love God? Or Jesus, I noticed that uh, you didn't have phylacteries on your head today when you uh, put your wardrobe together. Uh, Are you now living in sin? See, People who have the wrong motives will always find a reason to accuse and to exploit you. Three metaphors for two purposes. Three metaphors for two purposes. Uh, This is Jesus' response. Here we go. Matthew chapter 9, verse 15. Jesus responds to the disciples of John the Baptist about fasting. Here it is, uh, verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then... They will fast. In just verse 16, no one puts or places a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. In other words, here is Jesus. I asked you a question about fasting, and now it seems you're trailing off to somewhere else. Jesus, just answer the question, would you? I can see some attorney in court uh, demanding uh, Jesus to, Sir, just answer the question. If not, uh, the attorney who's, uh, who's questioning Jesus may say something to the effect that, Well, judge, can I uh, declare him to be a hostile witness? Because he just doesn't want to answer the question. He keeps beating around the bush. And here it is. I asked you a question about fasting. Why can't you? You're talking about a wedding. And now you're talking about sowing? Jesus, just answer the question. Can a wedding guest mourn while the groom is in their presence? That's what Jesus was asking them. In our culture, the main event at most weddings is when the bride walks down the aisle. Right? The bride, oftentimes, there's an announcement that's made. Everyone stands. And everyone stands. Right? The flower girl has come down and thrown flowers down the aisle. And in some cases, even a white runner has been pulled down to indicate the purity of the bride that comes floating down the aisle to her groom. But in other cultures, the bride is not 
the main event. In some cultures, the main event is the groom. My wife and I have been to a wedding in the Indian culture, and I'm talking about people who live in the country of India, not Native Americans, right? That at the wedding, the groom, he comes in dressed to the tee. He comes in riding on a white horse or, or a donkey, whatever they can get, right? Uh, but, but generally a white horse. There's music playing, there's celebration while the bride is waiting her groom to enter in. But in our society, it is the bride who gets all the attention. Everyone stands for the bride. I, I never really got that, right? You know, the, the, the groom, he comes in, it's like people are just talking on their cell phones. They're not paying him any attention. They're just doing their thing. There's, you know, all types of things going on. But all of a sudden, when the bride comes in, let's stand. So Jesus then, he predicts that there was soon coming a time in which uh, there will need to be, uh, to be in place uh, uh, that spiritual discipline of fasting. There will be a time in which uh, you will need to desperately call out for the bridegroom. But Jesus said that he was the groom and that he was already there. Why you need to fast for me as your answer when I'm already here? Jesus says, one day it's coming. And when that comes, then you will fast. In verse 15, Jesus may have used this in response to the disciples of John the Baptist, indicating that he was a fulfillment of all that John the Baptist spoke of. John chapter 3, verse 29 and 30. This is what John the Baptist says. John chapter 3. Verses 29 and 30, John the Baptist says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You see that? John the Baptist had already said that the groom was already in their presence, so therefore we have a reason to rejoice. And then John says, the joy of mine is now complete. It's fulfilled. And then he says, verse 30, he must increase, but I must what? You see, when Jesus shows up, he's the main event. Can you say Amen. When Jesus shows up, that he's the one that we are to be attracted to. He's the one that we fall down to because Jesus is the groom. New cloth, old cloth. New cloth, old cloth. Verse 16, Matthew 9. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Uh, Jesus goes on to say that a new piece of cloth 
uh, is used to cover, uh, if it's used to cover an O, uh, that it is not compatible. That these two things just don't go together. He's already said that fasting while uh, the bridegroom is present do not go together. And this is a place where Jesus provides more information than they were asking for. In fact, he goes on and gives more information that doesn't seem to match, again, the question that they are asking. You see, the newness of Christ can't be contained in the oldness of you. The newness of Christ cannot be contained in the oldness of you. And if you didn't hear me the first two times, I'll say it again. The newness of Christ cannot be contained in the oldness of us. Verse 17. Jesus says, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So to go along with the ushering in the kingdom, we must also understand the newness that Christ brings us. It's important that we don't place a spiritual discipline above Jesus who desires to be present with us. Uh, consider that. Think about that. Think about the implications. You fast and you fast and you fast and you fast and you fast uh, for God to do something. God does something and you can't recognize the answer. This is why we're able to perform spiritual disciplines. This is why that, as we heard uh, in our opening prayer, that there are people who use lots of words, lots of flowery language uh, in their prayers uh, trying to look good. But deep down inside, they're nothing but dead men's bones. Sometimes we only expect a quick boost, just enough to get us going. It's like the individual, I've seen individuals like this before, uh, who uh, they really need a new battery in their car. But all they say is, all I really need is just a boost from you, right? And you go and you, you know, turn your car around and you get the jumper cables and you connect the batteries and, and their car is coughing <laughs> and then it finally comes on and then they say, you're good to go until next time. And then they say, okay. And then next time you see them uh, and, and, and it's time to leave, they say, can I get a boost from you? So wait a minute. I, I thought that you were going to take care of this. Oh, yeah, well, all, all I need is just another boost. Some people, all they really want out of their spiritual life is just get a boost just to make it through the week. And then they wait until Sunday for another new boost. But our boost should occur every single day before God. Can you say amen? It is that time in prayer, that time in desperately seeking the face of God that we need day by day by day. When we focus on the act of the spiritual discipline, instead of the person, we end up with the dryness and the lifeless faith which no longer gives us the power to change because we can't see what God is doing. 
Now, when we think of this passage, we need to ask the question, what was the result of the Pharisees fasting and praying year after year after year? Let's think about that for a moment. The Pharisees were known for their fasting and being extremely spiritual. They were doing it on a regular basis, not just once a year, but every single week. What was the result of them seeking God's face week after week after week, year after year after year? Here it is. The result of them praying and fasting for all that time they murdered Christ. They killed Jesus. After how can you commit murder after you've been praying and fasting from an answer from God who gave it to you? How can that be the result? You see, sometimes our spiritual disciplines uh, become just a show. There's no real depth involved in our life. What kind of fast is that, that you commit murder? So the newness of Christ means we must stop using the old wineskins, which are ineffective for containing the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, an old or used wineskin had already been stretched to his capacity. You see, uh, when you get a new wineskin, if you don't know about this ancient practice, and you put fermented wine in there, uh, one thing that you know about fermented wine is that it expands. And as the fermented wine expands, uh, so does the skin uh, of the animal that's used to contain the wine itself. So you put the wine in, and the skin gets larger and larger, but eventually it is able to be contained in that, and you end up drinking, and that's the end of that. So if you use an old wine skin that's already been stretched to capacity, and then you put new wine into a wine skin that has been stretched, what will happen? It will burst. The wine will spill. And you will end up with a mess on your hand. You see, uh, this is what uh, John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees were thinking. That we, what we're going to do is, uh, we'll take the newness, but we're going to put it in our old ways. What have you done with the new wine that uh, God has poured out in you? What have you done? If the new wine of the Spirit of God uh, through Jesus Christ has been poured out into your life, are you putting it into old wineskins? Creating a mess all over the place. Everywhere you look, it's just a mess. Your family sees a mess. People on your job see nothing but a mess. Your children see a mess. Your neighbors see a mess. And you wonder, uh, I thought Jesus was stronger than this. Uh, but because uh, you have not understood the principle that new wine skin cannot be contained in old, new wine cannot be contained in old wine skin. 
See, new wine is for new wineskin. How can we, as followers of Christ, continue to act the same way that we used to act? At some point, the Holy Spirit should bring conviction. and There should be a newness about us. And if the new wine is poured out in us, and we have become a new creation in Christ Jesus, then the aroma of the Spirit of God will be all over the place, and people are going to be attracted to you. People will want what you have. If we have the newness of the Spirit through Jesus Christ our Lord coursing through our spirits, then why do we insist on living in old wineskins, all wrinkly and all crumbly, all nasty looking. If new wine is placed in old containers, it will make a big mess. What good is it to buy a person who gets drunk? A $3,000 suit if all they do is to live a staggering drunk life. What good would stilettos be on a chicken that lives in the hen house and roams around in the barnyard when they're finally released to stretch their little chicken legs? As followers of Christ, we're supposed to be better and do better. Even as we grow in our maturity in Christ, what we are today should not be what we used to be. Wanting to use old wineskins for new things is almost akin to rejecting new wine. Why would you put diamonds around a pig's nest, neck? Why uh, would you uh, take your best clothes and, and put it on a raccoon? Doesn't make sense. If Jesus has poured out the new wine in us, and if Jesus has created a new wineskin within us, then we should live accordingly. Of course, again, Jesus, he's talking about himself. He's saying that he was the new thing, that he uh, provides us with the new wineskin. The old ways are not sufficient. It is the new ways that are good enough for us. And we must be accepting of that. Old wineskins, listen to this. They therefore indicate that their usefulness has expired. It's done. It's done doesn't mean that they were never any good, but instead points to a need for something superior for the work that needs to be done. So what is it about us that struggles with acceptance of the fullness which the Lord has in store for us? This newness of Christ Jesus in us requires a newness of attitude, a newness of behavior, that is appropriate for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So the main point uh, this message is that what Jesus 
was trying to say, he said that there is an incompatibility of doing things the old way when a new, durable, and God-sent solution is in our midst. It is incompatible, brothers and sisters, to live in a way which compromises the testimony and the witness of Jesus Christ. Are you living or trying to live with new wine and old wineskins? Jesus is telling us today to repent. Come before him. Receive the newness. Because we know that new wine is for new wineskins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.